Welcome to the Carbon Mini-Series within the Exploring Opportunities podcasts, brought to you as part of the Future Farm Resilience Support delivered by NIAB, AKC and Savills, working in partnership. My name's Elizabeth Stockdale, Head of the Farming Systems Team in NIAB, and today we're going to explore practical tips for measuring soil carbon with my guest today, who is David Clark. Hello, David. Hello. We know each other quite well, but you know that I've been measuring soil organic matter and talking about soils and soil health throughout my career as a researcher but but how did you get involved? So I've been working with NIAB since 2017 so relatively short period but um, I work on the long-term experiments we run both at Morley and across East Anglia and even in my short period of working on farming systems experiments with sim carbon and soil organic matter you know even generate more interest over those five six years and a lot of the experiments we work on, looking at cultivations, rotations, cover cropping, amendments, manure use, all have quite large impact on soil organic matter and carbon. So it's a measure that we're very keen on measuring frequently in these experiments and obviously allowing us to demonstrate how different managing practices impact soil organic matter and carbon. OK, so we're going to go on to talk specifically about the measurements, but You've just said you've been involved in that wide range of field trials and monitoring. Are there any particular things that have stood out to you from perhaps the trials themselves about the management practices or anything else about those interactions on farm and soil organic matter? Yes, I suppose that the, the number one thing is we're, we're lucky to have such long term experiments. They're, they're quite a valuable resource, but also quite finite in the, the amount we have. But soil organic carbon and matter is obviously a slow process in building it, but also losing it. And actually, some of our experiments, it, it's quite difficult to measure those changes without sort of the repeated measurements and doing the measurements in the correct way in a standardised protocol. Um, for example, we managed the Saxmundham long-term experimental site, which has been going on since sort of the, the late 19th century. And we only really see a 1% change in organic matter from loads and loads of applications of farmyard manure over those 120 years. So actually to measure those changes over 10 years can be quite difficult. In terms of that 1% difference at Saxmundham, it, it, can you see that difference in the soil though? Does that difference in organic matter make a difference? Yes, definitely. You, you don't need to send off a sample to the lab to, to notice where those plots are just by digging a, digging a hole and, and doing a VEST score or looking at the aggregate stability. You can see they're much more friable, the soil structure's better. And we see the results in the, the agronomic data. Yields tend to be about 13% to 20% higher on those lots that have received farmyard manure compared to just mineral fertiliser. So you just highlighted that those long term applications of organic manures, farmyard manure in particular, there have made that difference. But is that difference about the nutrients you've added or the organic matter you've added? Can, can we tell the difference in, in the trial? Yeah, we can go some way to, to teasing them out. The, the experiment has control plots. So we have plots there that have not received manure, but we try and maintain P, K, MG and nitrogen um, through mineral fertiliser to a level that shouldn't restrict crop growth. So we can make this comparisons to that. Obviously, one of the advantage of farmyard manure and organic amendments is that with the carbon that you're putting in, there are other benefits such as micronutrients and macronutrients, but also how they improve water holding capacity, how they improve rooting uh, and even um, the workability of the soil and the drainage. So those all those things together is probably what's leading to that 13 percent, not a specific benefit from soil organic carbon on its own. It's the collective benefits you get from increasing your organic matter. OK, if you're going to give a top tip for farmers, would improve your soil organic matter be in that list? 
certainly where it's needed there's obviously we we see that we don't we're not building soil organic matter at Saxmundham anymore just through the regular applications of FYM so actually if you've got areas that are potentially below a certain threshold or you think might benefit more from soil organic matter maybe that's where you might focus on uh, and that being said there might be areas where actually applying loads more isn't going to generate that response because it's already at a, a quite high equilibrium um, but yes generally soil, soil organic matter is an important part of soil health and, and in looking to in increase it is only going to improve uh, not necessarily crop production but how our soils function. That idea of measuring and understanding our baseline can also help us target where to add the precious resource like farmyard manure or compost. Yes definitely. So that leads us almost like we would planned it into talking about measuring and, and monitoring particularly soil organic carbon but I'm sure we'll touch on other soil properties too. Measuring soil properties is part of that day-to-day -day role you have in field trials and experiments and, and you don't just focus on topsoil, you do go to depth. So you've dug some quite deep holes and taken some quite deep cores in your time. Why does that matter that we understand depth? How does soil organic matter, soil organic carbon change with depth? Depth is important sort of from two or three reasons. Um, the most obvious being that the most of the organic matter we put into a system, um, whether it's from plant biomass or, or residues or something we're adding to the system, such as manures or organic amendments, tend to be on the surface or close to the soil surface. So we get that natural, naturally higher concentrations on the soil surface or near the soil surface. Obviously, us as farmers will interact with that by incorporating those residues through cultivation, whether it's 10, 25 centimetres uh, in the soil. So that tends to mix it. But then obviously, we have different cultivation systems. So with some of our work has shown that where you're reducing cultivation intensity over 10, 15 years, you're not necessarily building large changes in soil organic carbon, but you might be slightly changing where it is within the topsoil layer. And as we go further down the soil profile, potentially 30 centimetres plus, we're outside the area that we can traditionally in impact in terms of mechanical movement, but obviously we have roots that go down to, if anyone that's been in a Nia soil hole can see root a metre plus down in that soil profile. Soil biology can obviously move organic material down the soil profile, earthworms will take leaf litter, uh, the subsoil. But obviously we see variation in the natural soil properties in the subsoil as well. So the topsoil we tend to mix with cultivation, whereas the subsoil we don't. So we might have natural stratification of soil layers and how sand, silt, clay, stone content is naturally layered and that might impact our soil carbon. It's also quite important from when we're measuring soil carbon stock below the 30 centimetres because actually those subsoils carbon stock potentially more stable. What we would normally do when we're benchmarking and, and really understanding soil carbon and we're talking about soil carbon and organic matter as if they're the same thing we'll just clear that one up they're not exactly yeah. the same thing no. but typically organic matter has 58 percent carbon so they they tend to be used as this shorthand organic matter contains lots of other nutrients too it's literally those leftover leaves worm bits and things and that have been turned over and broken down in the soil over a long period of time so i've noticed and i think scientists are really bad at that aren't they mixing those two terms up as yeah. we go along if we're sending soils off for analysis, though, we would get them benchmarked as a concentration. How many grams of carbon are in each kilogram of soil? So we'd get our lab result back because we'd sent that sample away and we'd usually get a percent. Is there a, is there a typical amount in soil? So I suppose the answer is yes and no. The, it depends. We have benchmarks that we can work to based on soil type, 
um, as you said, when we send our soil to the lab, if we're getting it returned as carbon, whether that's measured through DUMAS or soil organic matter through loss on ignition, they'll both come back as a percentage. And we have different benchmarks that we can work to. Um, recently, AHDB have published some guidelines for farmers on soil organic matter. So, for example, on a medium soil in the east of England, where I do a lot of my work, you know, we know if soil organic matter is around 3.4%. We can consider that an acceptable level, but however, below that limit, you might expect to see an improvement in soil function from increasing soil organic matter. When we're looking at soil carbon, again, we get that percentage back. As you said, it will typically be around 50, 58 percent less than or, or what your organic matter would be. But we can use some work Rothamsted have led looking at the National Soil Survey imagery suggested that we could use clay ratio as a way of benchmarking that. So, for example, if you're in an arable situation and your soil carbon in the topsoil is to a ratio of 1 to 13 to your clay content, then you know you're probably about right for pasture that uh, increases to a ratio of 1 to 10 because um, we expect there to be higher soil carbon. So we can use those benchmarks to see how our specific field or specific area of the field is doing in the context of a regional benchmark or, or what we might expect from that soil to function as we, we'd hope. Okay, so you suggested i think that a number of things might affect the amount of carbon organic matter in the soil land use was one of them so can you just talk to talk, talk to me a bit more you said grasslands like to be higher than crops are there any other things that we might look out for for different land uses and and their effect on carbon they're primarily driven by the inputs so where we've got grassland or woodland where we're putting larger amounts of soil organic material back into the system we're likely to see those higher organic uh, carbon measurements. And that being said, obviously, where we've got permanent pasture, we're not cultivating, potentially it's being stocked with livestock, whereas cultivation and in arable situations is going to oxidise some of that uh, carbon and we're going to lose it a bit more readily. So you talked about that relationship between soil organic matter and clay. Can you just explain that a little bit more to understand how we might use that ratio or a understand sort of if I've got a sandy soil what I might expect compared with say a clay loam. Soils that are higher in clay content are more likely to stabilise carbon. We're in sandier soils that tend to be more free draining, have more pores, have higher oxidisation. We tend to lose carbon and therefore make it harder to keep it within the soil. So if we've got the same situation, the same management practices, we'll likely to see clay soils have a slightly higher soil organic matter. Obviously, that's not independent. Actually, our management can have quite large impacts. It doesn't say we can't have sandier soils with higher soil organic matters than clay soils. But in the same situation, we'd expect those clays to have slightly slightly higher soil organic matter so, or carbon. So if we're looking for management differences, I think one of the things that might be really important is that we make sure that we're comparing soils of the same texture, because otherwise that texture difference might be give us a bigger difference in the organic matter than the management thing we're looking for. I'm aware you've been measuring organic matter across cult trials like the cultivation trial or um, across actually a network of sites across the farm at Morley. Does anything stand out to you from there of the sort of different factors that at farm scale or that in, in terms of farm management that might affect um, soil carbon or things like land use history perhaps? Yeah, this, at Morley, we've, we've done some quite extensive measuring across the farm of soil organic matter. What we've seen there is, as discussed, um, the variation in texture across the farm can have quite big impacts. Certainly when that varies within the same field, we can see the, 
um, sandier, certainly at the subsoil, sandier layers have got less carbon. But also we found that historic land use is having quite a big impact. Our higher organic matter sites, we can look at aerial photography and, and confirm that they were historically in grass pastures. In Norfolk, we're fortunate to have the whole area mapped just after the war, and we can see those fields are clearly long-term grass. Um, some surveys done by the council in the 80s have shown that they were inarable, so we know they've been arable for the last 40, 45 years. But what we still see is a legacy effect of that long-term grass. And this is, um, we kind of think back to some of the long-term experiments at Rothamsted that have shown that when you take long-term grass out, it can take 50, 60 years for that organic matter to decline to a new equilibrium. We're probably sort of somewhere along that point. And that's quite interesting from a management point of view, because we've got soils there that have been arable for a long time and a, a new equilibrium, not particularly low equilibrium, 3%, say, if we're talking about organic matter. But we've also got soils that are managed in the same way that are sort of four and a half percent. There's a legacy effect of that long term management. So what'll be interesting is with our current management, you know, can we maintain those soils at that higher equilibrium, that higher benchmark? Or are they going to continue to erode over the next 10, 20 years? And actually, without measuring that spatially, but also measuring that repeatedly over the rotation on those specific points, we wouldn't be able to capture that. And that's something other farmers can do on their own farm. I'm sure they've got areas that they are aware that were once in long-term grass and now in arable and they could compare them to a site they know to be in arable for much longer periods and likewise it's always valuable to then go and sample a, um, a field you know whether it's by the farmyard that's there's always been grass to sort of get a benchmark for that soil type of, of you know what how high is the organic matter in something that's a long-term grass compared to your arable and you can kind of re sort of repeat that experiment of Rosselsnade in a snapshot of time on your own farm and then see how that changes going forward. For carbon benchmarking, so if we were starting to think about entering perhaps a scheme in terms of, or even just knowing where we are in terms of our stock of carbon, we have to take that percentage number that we've measured and turn it into a tonnes per hectare measure. That requires us to, I think, to sample in, in, in a slightly different way than wandering out with a spade and just getting a bag of soil. Can you talk us through the sort of approaches you use to get those stock measures and what you'd measure as well as measuring that sample of carbon in the soil. When you send the sample to the lab, it will tend to be um, sieved to remove all the stones and uh, maybe only a teaspoon of it will be analysed and you will re receive back a carbon percentage. So although that figure is useful to measure trends, you know, that doesn't mean it's not a useful figure. We can see if that percentage is going up or down that will give us an idea whether we're management techniques are in increasing or decreasing our carbon. It doesn't actually tell us how much carbon there is stored in the soil profile. To accurately answer that, we need to know much more about the soil and how much soil there actually is. So the measure we do to attain that is debulk density measures the mass of a soil in a known volume. So in soils with very little stones, for example, we can measure this by just putting in a core with the known volume on farm. Um, on farm, you might use a steel pipe, for example. If stones are present, we can sieve them out and calculate their volumes. And then we know how much soil there is in a known area and we can multiply the percentage that we know is carbon back from the lab by that to work out the carbon stock. This becomes more complex in really stony soils or where soils have very large stones that aren't incorporated within our cores. And we might need to estimate the stone content um, using developed keys or or even taking larger samples that we then sieve and, and measure how much the stone volume is. But that obviously makes things a bit more complex. 
on alkaline soils where pHs are above seven. Inorganic carbon might be a factor and we need to make sure we're getting the appropriate measurements from the labs that take into account that any limestone or chalk. So you'll tend to hear terms like soil organic carbon, which is just focusing on the organic side of the carbon and we've, we'll take account of any inorganic carbon that might be present. And you and I have done it together when we're doing it really well to, to benchmark soils We've, we've chosen our sampling sites very carefully, but then we actually dig some quite big holes, don't we, to, to really understand the layers of soil that are there to characterise each one of them separately and, and then to put things together. So for us, at least, it's not as simple as just being out in the field and, and going, well, it's this number. It's it's a quite a long process to be to be sure of the number in tonnes per hectare that we're getting. Yes, particularly when we talk about bulk density and, and how much soil is, that's going to be impact by... Um, the heterogeneity through the soil profile. If we're looking at a standard system that's cultivated, we're, we're pretty confident that across that top 25 centimetres, our bulk density is going to be representative. But as we go down the soil profile where it isn't mixed or we've got natural stratification, we might want to do samples to take into account, you know, a stony layer or a sandy layer that's got very different bulk density and might have slightly different carbon levels. So we need to both measure that in the lab, but also we need to take into account and measure the, the changes in things like bulk density and stone content in those different layers to accurately work out the total amount of carbon in that soil profile. I think there are starting to be techniques that allow farmers to, to have the soil carbon stock. So that's the bulk density and the carbon measured at the same time. I think they're still being really verified. So farmers really should take care, I think, in terms of using those tonnes per hectare measures they've got. And also particularly make sure it's not just the, the measurement in the lab that matters, but also how the sample's collected if we're going to benchmark those things going forward. Yes. Yeah, so I think there's a the number of points there that we're reiterating that the first one is obviously if you are, um, this is more of a case for soil organic matter than it is for soil organic carbon but if you're you're measuring them make sure you're sending them to the same lab and you're getting the same analysis done each time um you know that will help compare over time whereas if we're changing what we're measuring or we're changing what depth we're measuring at that will make it very difficult to compare um and then also making sure we're sampling in the same point in the rotation and also um the same time of year can make a difference so stick to a plan so if you're going to sample you know, off the top of my head, you might say, I'm going to sample in the autumn after my first wheat. Do that regularly every five years or three years, whatever that might be, and send the soils to the same lab and make sure you're requesting the same analysis. So then we can start to pick up those trends across time. Whereas if we're chopping and changing what we're doing, it makes it much, much harder to pick out those trends or, or what might be going on temporally. So if you were going to give farmers advice about how to set up a scheme like that, now thinking perhaps about not just as you say, rotationally or when in the year we might take them, but literally where in the in the fields we might go. There's a there's a range of sort of spatial ways of mapping soil. How could we use that sort of information to help us guide how to set up a good monitoring scheme for our soil carbon? Yeah, so I suppose the first thing um, would be to probably get the maps up, but then ignore them and then say, well, as a farmer, what experience do you have and what do you know about the farm and, and the land and, and where you might see that variation? I know 
you know, farms change hands and we take on new bits of land and that might have a different management history to uh, another part of the farm. So we can naturally break up the area of land into those parcels and say, right, we know this has been managed this way, this has been managed this way, therefore we're likely to want to measure them separately. And then we can look at maybe more finer detail. We know this part of the farm or this part of the field was in grass in the 50s, that's we might want to look at that. And then we can start to use other pieces of spatial data. From a soils point of view, we can use things like electrical conductivity mapping. This can be useful to see where we have variation in just general soil properties. It could be soil depth, it could be soil texture, it could be stoniness. Uh, these all influence our, our soil electrical conductivity readings. But they're, they're useful because it measures it down to depth. So it may not just be in the top soil that this variation is happening. And so therefore, you might not pick it up through your routine soil sampling, but you might be able to pick up how variation in carbon um, changes with depth using those EC maps to target our sampling. And then we've also found um, both at Morley and some other sites that actually yield maps are really valuable tools in identifying where you might want to sample um, for soil carbon or soil organic matter. You, we kind of make sense from a logical point of view. There's where yield's been higher consistently in yield map areas. That's probably been the case for centuries. So we've got much higher organic material returns in those areas that's going to build that soil carbon. But then also there might be the reason that's a higher yielding area. For example, in Morley, dry area in the country, um, our higher yielding areas tend to be slightly heavier soils with a higher water holding capacity. Uh, as with higher clay content, as we've already discussed, uh, therefore we those soils might be more readily uh, able to store carbon. So you've kind of got this positive feedback loop that with the soils that are higher yielding are putting more carbon back into the system, but they're more readily available to store that. So we found that yield maps can be really valuable in looking at where we may want to sample to capture that variation within a field and across the farm. So we we come to the end of our conversation, David. Um... If, to finish, what would your top tip be if you, you needed to leave us with, with something for farmers to take away and think about when they're thinking about measuring soil carbon? Probably not nothing new that we haven't discussed, but I think just to reiterate that to, you know the data is going to be valuable when you get it back from the lab straight away. It's going to be of interest to you, but this data is going to be more valuable as time goes on. So really think about exactly where you want to sample, exactly how you want to sample. We've talked about the differences between organic matter and soil carbon and whether you just want to look at the top soil and measure change or actually, no, I want to do a full carbon audit down the depth. That will limit how many samples you can do. Because it's going to be valuable in 10, 15 years time, it's best to do it sort of now. You know, don't wait. Let's get some data in the bank that we can compare to in 2030, 2035. Thank you for your time and thank you for letting me to pick your brain. Um, no, thank you for having me.